Father, we're very grateful. You've shown yourself to us to be a good God. You, Lord, you could be nothing other than that. And so I praise you for it, Lord. As we we just meet one more time here, we open the word. I pray you'd help us, that you'd send your spirit, oh God. You'd convict us. You'd give us encouragement in Christ. Lord, we sing these songs. We have a high priest who is in heaven, whoever pleads for me. Whoever pleads for us, what a glorious reality, Lord. What love you have displayed to us. Lord, how could it not transform us? How could we not in like manner walk in love, Lord? Help us. Father, I pray for this dear sister as our brother brought her to our attention. We pray for her family. Lord, you have the you're the God of comfort. I pray that you'd comfort her, dear son. Can't even think about my a child losing his mother. God, would you be gracious there? Meet with us, Father. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. First Corinthians 16 again. Just read this verse one more time. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Well, as we deal with the final message here, I think it's very fitting for us to end in this particular place. Acting like men in all things loving. And I say that because, number one, if we look at the life and the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the preeminent focus in the scriptures. We have no greater example by which to live than Jesus Christ. And he was preeminently the one who was in all things loving. And beyond that, of course, Jesus lived it out in the pages of the New Testament. We see it actually in action. But other than that, the rest of the New Testament is not silent on the matter. The rest of the New Testament tends to weigh in pretty heavily on love and its supreme importance in what ought to overshadow the Christian life. And of course, you're probably well familiar with one of the most emphatic statements about such things, 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers 
and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. And if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have. And if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And all of this is to show that love's importance is such that Paul's words sort of expound on the reality that not only can you gain the whole world and lose your soul, as Jesus certainly told us, but you could even give the whole world and even your own body to be burned and still lose your soul without love. This is no small thing for us. Jesus gave the disciples that commandment in the upper room. He says to them, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I mean, that's Christ's commandment to the disciples. That's why Paul can say, Romans 13, the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. In Galatians 5, the whole law is fulfilled in one word or one commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And he's really just taking Christ's commandment to the disciples and he is making it supreme. And by doing so, he's really just telling them that if you would do as Christ calls you to and you would love as Christ calls you to love, you would show yourself to be a law keeper. And John brings it out again. This emphasis upon love, John brings it out in his first letter. First John three, he says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And you know what? We don't have to guess at what it is that John thinks that the commandments are because he tells us and his commandment is this, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he has commanded us. James brings it out. The command of love is all over the place. There he calls it the perfect law, the law of liberty, the royal law. Brethren, over and over and over and over again. The, God is trying to get us to see something. Points us to love and Christ's example as the supreme image of it. Galatians 6.2, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 1 Corinthians 16, 14, let all that you do be done in love. Galatians 5, 6, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Colossians 3, 12 through 14, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. I mean, all of that is good. But then he says this, and above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Hebrews 10, 24, let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works. First Peter 4, 8, above all, above all, keep 
loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. First Thessalonians four nine, you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You've been taught that by God. First Timothy one five. I mean, can you have a better pointed direction of Paul's ministry and teaching? He says the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Brethren, the point is this. God does not consider love to be cheap. In fact, he seems to put a pretty high premium on it all over the Bible. And as Jesus finishes giving that commandment to his disciples, he tells them, John 13, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another, by this, they will know that you love me, that you follow me because you love others. Brethren, if you want to find out which men are serious disciples of Jesus Christ and are worthy to be emulated, you need to look to this. Do they have a genuine, a pure hearted love for the brothers, for the church and and for the world, for lost souls? Because without love, Paul says, nothing. Nothing is gain. There's no gain without it. And look, the thing is this. The world wants to ruin for us what biblical love is. They want to turn, they want to turn love into some kind of thing which protects them from anything that makes them uncomfortable. They use the word. They use the same word love, but they kind of change its definition. And they want to make it out to be something more that might be akin to open-minded. That's not love. That's not how the Bible defines love. That's not who God is. And therefore, that's not proper for us to live like that. God doesn't look like that in his love. We ought not look like that in our love. So even though the world wants to ruin it, it is biblical. And it is an example of what is true manhood. So what I want to do is this. I want to put on display for you God's love and how God has manifested it to us. Because if we can first and foremost display God and the Lord Jesus as the pinnacle of what it means to be filled with love, we will not only properly define it, which is very important, but it will give us an example to walk in. And that's what I want us to do here. And it's going to be a bit different. I mean, the other messages have been somewhat topical in nature. I mean, we've dealt with different scriptures. But uh, in this one, I want to kind of spend our time in one particular section of the Bible. It's one of my favorite sections in scripture. So turn to 1 John chapter 4. And we're going to hang out here pretty much the whole time. I'll make mention to a number of other places, but I want us to walk through this section. First John chapter four. If I can open this. Verses seven through twelve. 
This passage gives us an explanation of where love comes from, the supreme example of love, a model to follow, and a call, of course, for us to put it into action. So I'm going to read this whole section here, and then we're going to jump back through and kind of see John's argument. Starting in verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God. Because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, in verse seven and eight, go back up to the top here. John begins this section and he states a positive proof of the one who has been born of God and a negative proof of the one who has not been born of God. And the proof itself is the same. It's love. And the question becomes, do you have it? Do you have this genuine love which is spoken about by John? Because it becomes the determinant factor in John's mind whether or not you know Jesus Christ. The determinant factor. John is able to lay it down as a biblical axiom. Anyone who does not have a heart of genuine love does not know God. How is he able to do that? Why can he say it? Why is this particular characteristic one in which John can say, if you don't have it, you don't know God, period? Well, I think it's because of what he ties it to. I mean, brethren, he ties it to the character of God. He says in verse 8, they don't know God because God is love. Love is fundamental to God's nature. And John's argument is this. If we claim to be children of the living God, those who have been made into his image, who are, who are, who are claiming to walk in his likeness, who are claiming to imitate his nature, albeit to an imperfect degree, but his argument is if we do not emulate that which is God's most basic characteristic, how can we know that we even know him? 
If we claim to have encountered the living God who is love, and we don't mirror him in love, even to some smaller degree, brethren, then we have no reason to believe that we did encounter such a God. And on the flip side, this is the glorious part. Not only is that true, but brethren, the flip side is just as true. You can know that you have come to know God, or rather been known by God, because you do love. I mean, this is a supernatural thing. The heart that is bent on love is only a byproduct of regeneration. It does not come by any other means. I mean, think about this. Previous to such workings of God, here's what Paul says to Titus. We were passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Brethren, love was not normal. Hatred was normal. That was the default of our heart. Hatred was normal. In fact, it was so normal, Paul says that we were passing our days in it. It's like a man who sits out front on his porch and passes his day drinking a cup of lemonade. You know what we were doing? Passing our days in envy and hatred and hating people and people were hating us. That's just the normal nature of the course of our lives. He says to the Galatians that we were filled with fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, division, envy. He says to the Colossians that we were hostile in hostile hostile in mind doing evil deeds anger wrath malice slander obscene talk lying i mean that was the normal nature of our heart and we have to ask the case if this was the case and it was before christ most certainly then how did love come in I mean, how does that even enter in as part of who we are now? Because it wasn't present in who we were before. And the answer is, of course, it comes in supernaturally as a fruit wrought by the Spirit of God. Supernaturally. There's nothing natural about love. Love tops the list for Paul when it comes to the fruits of the Spirit. It is something, like we talked about last night, that is produced by the Spirit in the life of a Christian. Not something that that we produce. Now look here at verse 9. John follows that up with the purest example of love, which in his argumentation is intended to motivate us. He tells us how the love of God was put on display for for everyone to see. It was made manifest. It was imaged. It was brought to light. And he says it was brought to light in this way. He sent his son that we might receive life through him. And if it ended there, we might have some questions, right? Well, why did, I mean, okay, he sent his son, but why did he send his son? What did he send his son to do exactly? And how is it that we receive life through him? Well, he tells us, of course, in the next verse, or just a little bit down in in that verse, 
He says that he sent his son to be the satisfaction of God's wrath. To propitiate. I mean, it literally means to pacify. It's it's like my child, he's one, and he'll scream. You take that pacifying, you stick it in his mouth. (laughs) And it stops the screaming. I mean, I know the image is not exact because God is not capricious in his anger. But brethren, you have to get this. Apart from Jesus Christ, God's wrath was coming towards you. And it was fierce. I mean, it was fierce. And he was going to judge you and he was going to cast you into a lake of fire. Jesus says where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. There is nothing good there. And it says here that Jesus' death was to satisfy the fierce anger of God towards us. It pacified it. Brethren, we receive life because Jesus Christ received death in our place. And an exchange took place. An exchange which no man, no angel could have ever dreamed of. Brethren, if you would have stood before God and he would have said to you, what would you have me to do to glorify my name? None of us would have ever played out the plan that God had laid out. No one would have ever dreamed this up. God sends his son to take the place of a rebel, an enemy. That's what Paul says. While we were enemies, we were reconciled. It says Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, you get the weight of it. Christ. Who's, who, what does Christ mean? Messiah. Anointed one. This is the promised Messiah. You know, the Bible speaks about the promised Messiah. The righteous one. The perfect one. And Paul says that the Messiah died for The Messiah, who is God himself, come in the flesh, dies for God-haters. I mean, it is an unbelievably glorious reality. There is no greater manifestation of love than that. There just cannot be. Brethren, I want to spend a bit of time here for a minute. I don't want to move on too quick from this. Because this is what John is intending to use To motivate us in love. And it needs to be what persuades us. The idea of the Son of God coming and being the place where all the wrath of God is now satisfied. And that being for you and I a substitute. Something put in the place of another. That idea, brethren, and not just that Jesus is a a a, a satisfaction of God's wrath in some general sense over here, but that he is the satisfaction of God's wrath to you as an individual if you trust in Jesus Christ. It's like what Paul says in Galatians, the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul doesn't make it, I mean, it is universal, of course, but Paul is trying to get the brethren to see God gave himself for me. In my place, the wrath of God towards you, brother, not to be astounding for us. And sadly, the reality is it's oftentimes just not astounding. Yeah. It's kind of 
I mean, it's kind of ordinary at times. I mean, we talk about it. Jesus died for our sins. I tell my kids all the time. I mean, if I ask my son, how did Jesus pay for our sins? He died on the cross. Are you a sinner? Yes. I mean, the answer is just repetitive. And we do this. It's just It just becomes ordinary for us. And we have a hard time grasping this concept of substitutionary atonement. A death of, of one in place of another. And I think it's because that concept was not normative for us. It's never, as Gentile, anybody here Jewish? All right, you're all like me. <laughs> We're all Gentiles. And the fact of the matter is, that was not normative for us. But I want you to place yourself for a moment in the position of a Jew. And I think you will begin to see the weight of this kind of thing. The Jews, you see, they they had particular visual aids, so to speak, that helped them to grasp the importance of a substitutionary atonement. I mean, they were slaughtering animals all the time, day after day, animal after animal, repetitive. And it was meant to signify for them an atonement. A substitution for their sins. And then certain times, like the Passover, for example, every family brings a lamb and they kill them all. I mean, folks, sometimes we have these numbers in the Bible and we just don't know what to do with them because they're not numbers like our numbers are. But, I mean, 500,000 lambs on the day of Passover would have not been even close to an overkill of how many animals they probably would have killed on that day. 500,000 lambs. It was repetitive. Over and over and over. Animal after animal. I mean, Hebrews 10 says, this served as a reminder for them every year for their sins. And they knew it was impossible, brethren, that the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sins. They knew this because they had to keep offering them, of course. I mean, if it worked and their sins were completely dealt with, they would have a clean conscience and they would have not had to offer sacrifices anymore. But it it did not deal with it. So day after day, month after month, year after year, it was like a giant, a giant, you guys may not have neon signs here, but we have them a lot in Las Vegas. It was like a giant neon sign over the altar with a big finger pointed at them that said, you deserve this. That's what it was for them. Constant 